You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, we'll be looking at verses 25 to 34 this morning. I, I woke up one night with a very sharp pain in my abdomen. I went to the hospital, and seeing I was in serious pain, the doctor moved to quickly diagnose the issue. He started touching my stomach in various places, and he asked the same question, does it hurt here? I'd say no. He says, does it hurt here? No. Pressing on different spots. Finally, he pressed on a spot, uh, it's it's the lower right-hand side, as I'm looking at it, of my abdomen, and And I had to look down when he pressed on that spot because it felt like he had taken a knife and was thrusting it into me. I wanted to make sure that he was just touching it and he wasn't doing anything else. But I looked down and he said, does it hurt here? And I could barely let out a yes. He said, okay, it's appendicitis. He said, I'm 99% sure that you have appendicitis. We've got to confirm with a CT scan, but... I'm pretty sure that's what you have. Sure enough, CT scan came back, and my appendix, which is a small appendage, supposed to be a little bit smaller than your pinky finger, um, had swollen to the size of a golf ball and was ready to bust. And so they performed surgery quickly and removed it. Even though his touch was excruciatingly painful, I'm thankful for a good doctor touching the pain point, diagnosing the problem so that we could find a solution. Now, I find the Lord Jesus Christ to be doing the same thing in this passage that we're going to look at today. He does this as a master physician. He diagnoses and provides, prescribes a cure for a problem that every single one of us deals with, anxiety. Anxiety. Now, I don't have to go through the statistics to tell you how anxious people are today. I think you and I both well know that we're anxious. We're an anxious people. This is an anxious generation. So many worries and concerns in our lives. Small worries to big worries and concerns. Just reading through the news this morning and, and saw what's happening in the Gaza Strip in Israel. And man, big things are, are happening. There's so much to worry about, isn't there? And to be fearful of. Whatever you call it, the symptoms are similar. Anxiety, worry, stress, fear. All of us deal with it. And some of us are predisposed to it and manifest severe symptoms. Uh, maybe you've had panic attacks, shortness of breath, heart palpitations, extreme fatigue, insomnia, OCD-like behavior. Maybe some in this room have been formally diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Other of us, others of us were still deal with anxiety, but maybe we manage the symptoms differently. Maybe some of us isolate when we're stressed. Some of us lash out in anger when we're fearful. Some channel it into workaholicism, and into their profession, even into competition. I heard an interview with Mike Tyson, and the interviewer asked Mike Tyson, the famous boxer, he asked him, Mike, you know, what's that feeling that you get when you step into the ring and you're ready for a, a boxing match? 
And Mike responded pretty quickly. He said, it's fear. That's strange. He said, ever since I was a child, I fought from a place of fear. Isn't it ironic that the most feared fighter in boxing was himself driven and motivated by fear? He was fearful. Some of us become overprotective, overprotective of our people, our children, our spouse. Maybe we're protective of our possessions, our things. We have insurance policies for our insurance policies. We manifest uh, symptoms of anxiety or anxious, fearful, stressful symptoms every day. All of us are worry warts at some level and we've succumbed to fear. Some of us here today are crippled by it, overwhelmed with fear. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for us, we who are anxious? Well, let's look to the master physician. Shall we? Let's look to the Lord Jesus Christ for an accurate diagnosis and a helpful cure to deal with anxiety. Let's look to what he says on this subject. Point number one in your outline, the diagnosis. You've got to start with a good diagnosis. You've got to know what the problem is. What is the first word in your ESV version Bible? Of verse 25. Somebody tell me. First word. Therefore. Therefore. That's an important word. What the therefore does is it connects us back. Jesus is building an argument here. It connects us back to what He had just said previously. And so we need to look back at verse 24 and remember the thrust of the sermon last Sunday to get an accurate diagnosis here for anxiety. Verse 24 reads this, No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So there is a direct relationship between our command today and our passage, it's commanded three times, do not be anxious. There's a relationship between that command and who we serve as master. Think about that. As I stated last week, whoever you serve or whatever you serve as master in your life, if it's not God, it is, it is what? It is an idol, right? Right? The Lord God said you shall not worship any other gods. You shall not create for yourself graven images. Worship or entrusting yourself to possessions, treasures, or anybody or anything outside of God, it is idolatry. So think about this. Could idolatry be the root problem of anxiety? In other words, is it That the anxiety and stress and fear in our life is a product of, it's a result of our heart idolatry. Think about that. I mean, it, it makes sense. Because if you live, if you give your life to wealth and possessions, you're going to fear losing them. 
or you're going to fear never getting enough. If you give your life to relationship idolatry, you entrust yourself to people while people fail you, and really you're probably driven by what the scriptures call a fear of man. And so you fear rejection, you fear, fear conflict in relationships, maybe you fear being left alone, maybe you fear the possibility of, of never being loved for who you are. Well, it makes sense that our idolatry would then lead us to become anxious, fearful. Do you see a correlation? You know, it's interesting, uh, the Greek word for anxious can also be understood to mean distracted or having a double eye. So you're focused on too many things, a divided eye. Martha, you might know the story, Martha's running around her house trying to prepare food and get things ready for Jesus, her guest. And Mary is doing what? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, focused on him, listening to him teach. Now Martha comes in and asks Jesus to rebuke Mary for not helping her around the house. And Jesus says this in Luke 10. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. And you're troubled about what? Many things. Distractions. But only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen it. Do you remember what Jesus said in verse 22 of Matthew 6? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, we we noted that that means your eye is singular. You're focused. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. Mary's vision is clear. It's singular. She's focused on the light of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Martha's vision is blurred. Her eye is divided. She's distracted by, in reality, lesser gods. Lesser gods. Now, if the darkness is in you, Jesus notes, verse 23, how great is that darkness? If you're anxious, you know anxiety produces a great darkness in your soul. Sometimes a mountain of darkness that's unscalable. It seems overwhelming. Could it be that the lesser gods are producing anxiety, fear? Who are the lesser gods that divide your attention? produce fear in your life? Is it possessions? Is it money? Where's your treasure pile? Could it be substances or pleasure? Where do you go to escape? Family, friends, co-workers, whose opinion do you value the most? Could it be that the lesser God we all serve ultimately is ourself? We want to be the master of our own universe, don't we? We want control. And it all goes well when you have control, when you're able to control your circumstances and it's working out for your good. But when you lose control, what happens? The whole world spirals and you become what? Fearful, anxious, worried. Because ultimately, 
Life is outside of our control. So Jesus presses on our hearts here. He presses on this issue and identifies the problem. And it it does hurt, but it is true. Idolatry is the root of anxiety. It's because you're giving yourself, you're entrusting yourself to lesser gods. And they will fail you. You're serving really an untrustworthy master who's not fulfilling you, not satisfying you, who is not in control. That's the Lord's diagnosis. And with that diagnosis then, He turns to give us a cure. The rest of this passage is focused then on the cure. Jesus says three times, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. And He gives us three good reasons why. Here's the summary of it. Trust a better master. Trust a better master. Or in your outline, I think it's just two blanks. Trust God. There's the cure. Trust God. Easier said than done. But there's good logic here Jesus uses to compel us to trust God because He's worthy of our trust. He is a better master, our Heavenly Father, and He cares for us. Very simple illustrations here. In fact, it's hard to preach because these illustrations just kind of speak for themselves. But we need to look at them. We need these reminders. Three reasons why we should trust God. Reason number one, your Father is sovereign. Your Father is sovereign. Sovereign meaning that God exercises active control over all things. Supreme ruler, and that means he's in control over all things in heaven and on earth. Deism is the belief that a supreme being created the world, but that that supreme being is not sovereign. In other words, they believe that God created it all and then walked away. When we're anxious, think about it, when we become worried, fearful, we essentially believe the same thing, don't we? We forget God's presence, we forget His sovereignty, we forget that He's in control, and and we're led to believe that God let everything out of His control, and it's all spiraling, and we nobody has control. Robert Mounts says that worry is practical atheism. You may say there is a God, but in fear, you live like there's not. In our fear, we scream, God is not in control. And the Scriptures tell us otherwise. Look at these passages. Really important reminder, Psalm 135, 6-7. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 145.16 You, God, open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Acts 17.28 For in him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1.17 He, Christ, is before all things and in him all things Hold together. God is not passive. 
He exercises active control over all of creation. He gives life. He determines the span. He moves. He feeds. He intervenes. He acts. He saves. He keeps. He holds all things together. He is sovereign. And Jesus' point here, Jesus' point here is very simple. Don't miss it. If your sovereign Father cares for lesser creatures, how much more will He care for you? The crown of His creation. He asks four rhetorical questions here. Look down at the passage. Verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on clothing. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The answer is yes. There is more to life than just eating food. Although some of us, we really like food. So that's like a big part of life, but not the end of it. And then the body more significant than the clothing that we wear. This is a classic biblical argument. The greater to the lesser, if the, the greater point can be proven, then the lesser follows suit. You have life in, in a body, do you not? Check your pulse real quick. You're good? Because that's, that's essential for Jesus to make his point here, okay? Where did your life and your body come from? Who gave you life? Who gave you your body? Was it not your sovereign Father? Acts 17.25 He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm 139 The kids are learning this in kids class today. That God has formed us in our mother's womb. He formed our inward parts knit us together. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Here's Jesus' point with this rhetorical question. Why would God starve the life He gave you? Why would God leave your body, the body He gave you, naked and unclothed? Surely He'll provide care for the life and the body He gave you. Second rhetorical question is in verse 26. It starts with a command, look. I believe Jesus at this point is pointing. Look, he says in his sermon, at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Jesus says, these birds don't have rainy day funds. They don't have storage nests on top of their current nest. You won't find birds accounting for future inflation. You won't find them running the charts. You're not going to see them forecasting blocks in their supply chain. They're not running spreadsheets to optimize their flight patterns and gather more food. They fly out with an instinct. They're going to work. You know what they fly out trusting? That they're going to come back with food. And enough for the day. Enough for them and to feed their young. And what happens? Well, birds are not extinct, are they? (laughs) They're still alive, breeding, producing. We've plenty of them. Why? Because your heavenly Father feeds them. Do you see that? Your heavenly Father feeds them. 
the father leads the little bird to sustenance and makes sure that their existence continues. Here's the rhetorical question. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not more important than the birds? The answer is yes. I hope for you that it's yes. Okay, Your pet parakeet is not more important than your friend, your family, your neighbor, your fellow human beings in your life. Man was created to rule over, bo- over the birds. Genesis 1.26 tells us that. We're made in the image of God after His likeness, and so let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and guess what? Over the birds of the heavens. There's a natural order. There's a value pyramid in God's created order, and mankind is at the top. Psalm 8 tells us, you have crowned him, man, with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field, and guess what? The birds of the heavens. Human beings are more valuable than the animals. Yes, even the birds. Amen? You believe this, yes? Now, more than that, more than the fact that we even, you know, the Imago Dei, we created in the image of God, every human being. Think about then how even much more valuable to be His child, saved. So you're not only created in the image of God, you not only have more value as a human being, made in God's image, but even more so, think about the reality that if you're truly His child, truly born again, saved by Him, then you're of even more value. God will ensure your caretaking because He ensures your salvation. You're a chosen race, 1 Peter 9 says. 2.9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's a great future in store for us. Those saved by God, chosen by Him, made His people. So back to the rhetorical question. If He feeds the birds, the lesser creature... Can't we expect Him to feed us? Man, creating the image of God, His children, saved and made His possession. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Third rhetorical question. Verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? The obvious answer is Nobody. In fact, science tells us that by being anxious, you shorten your lifespan. It does you no good (laughs) to be worried, fearful. Who determines our lifespan? Who determines the span? Who sets your days before you're even born? Psalm 139 again tells us, in your book were written, God's book, Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Here's a funny question with an obvious answer. Is worrying about your life benefiting or helping you in any way? It doesn't, right? 
It doesn't. God determines your days. He is sovereign. You can trust Him. He's the one in control. Fourth rhetorical question to show that God is sovereign, He's in control, is in verse 28. It starts in verse 28. It says, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Did anybody see the super bloom of 2019? You're laughing? Did you see it? Okay. It was, uh, it was in just north of Lake Elsinore in the hills. I, I drove through there every day because it was on the way in and out of seminary, attending seminary classes in L.A., living in Marietta. So I drove past the super bloom. It's this incredible event, really beautiful. In 2019, I guess because it was a wet winter, in that spring, California poppies covered the hillside. Just this orange and yellow, beautiful, beautiful scene. People were stopping, almost coming to a halt on the freeway as they're driving by just to look at the thing. And I was stuck in some of that traffic. Maybe that's why you were laughing, Jimmy. Um, Jesus here is pointing to a similar scene in Galilee, a, a green hill covered in flowers. Beautiful. And he makes the comment that even Solomon, Israel's wisest, richest, most magnificent king at the height of the historical dynasty, the beauty of his royal garments didn't even compare to the beauty of these flowers covering the hills. And we do recognize it is beautiful, isn't it? Now, do we find grass shopping at Saks on Fifth Avenue? Do we see grass peddling for cash so that they can buy their hats, the flower petals? No. What happens? God graciously, and according to His nature, His beauty, His design, graciously lavishes these fields with beautiful colors for His creation to enjoy. For us to look at that and go, wow, He is magnificent. Wow, He is wonderful. Those hills are wonderfully made. Those hills extol and exalt the beauty of God. Here's the rhetorical question. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive, tomorrow's thrown into the oven, it's temporary, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Learn a lesson from the lilies. Grass is temporary. Those hills covered in California poppies are normally brown. Very ugly. (laughs) And sometimes fires consume them. Grass is temporary. The flowers are temporary. They last but a spring season. You are not. You have a soul. You are... His child, if you've been saved by faith. He's granted you 
not only physical life, but spiritual life, you child of God. He's given you a body, and He's going to grant you a new body at the resurrection in glory. You have a wonderful future ahead of you. Do you doubt the grace of God in your life now? James 1.17 reminds us that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He does not change. Psalm 127.2 says, It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. He cares for you. He keeps that heart beating, your lungs expanding, breathing. 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast your anxiety on Him. Simple statement. He cares for you. Do you believe that? Has God lavished your life with beautiful flowers? Hasn't He granted you good gifts? Even the hardest life, even the hardest life filled with tragedy, difficulties, troubles, suffering, Even the hardest life has some hills in it covered in poppies and lilies. There are good gifts that we have been given in this life. Amen? Some of them are sitting in this room next to you. Some of them are still to come. Some of them are behind. Consider your life, every good gift that God has given you. And the appropriate response is not to be concerned about what you don't have, to look out there and say, oh, I want more and more and more. The appropriate response is to see what God has given you and then be what? Thankful. Thank you, God. Look at all these good things I have in my life. Look at the good gifts that you've given me. Oh, you've given me breath for another day. Oh, you've given me a wonderful spouse. Oh, you've given me great children. Even if you haven't given me those things, you've given me life, you've given me faith so that I can believe in you and one day be with you in eternal life in heaven. I have the hope of eternal future with Jesus Christ. And so you can be thankful. And that's what Paul tells us to do in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. So God proves His care for us. He points to these small things and shows us how He cares for them. And so how much more will He care for you, Christian? How much more? The first reason to not be anxious, to trust God, is that your Heavenly Father is sovereign and He is a good, sovereign Father. He provides your needs. He cares for you, His beloved creation his precious people, and he will not neglect you because he doesn't neglect them. The second reason to not be anxious and trust God is what we just sang about before the sermon. His kingdom is first. His kingdom is first. You've got to get your priorities straight, okay? Food, water, clothing, those are not the most important things. Jesus says that in verse 31. He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Kent Hughes calls this the, uh, the trinity of earthly concerns. 
Food, water, clothes. These are earthly concerns. Jesus tells us that. This is the concerns of the world, the pagan. He says the Gentiles, verse 32, seek after these things. They live for these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. These are the pursuits of the world. To live, they live to eat, drink, work, and wear nice clothes. Sleep, wake up again, eat, drink, work, wear nice clothes. Eat or sleep, wake up again, and the cycle continues. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows these are necessities of life. And by the way, let's just remember what the necessities are for living, shall we? It's not to have the bigger house. It's not to have the higher paying job. It's not to have the comforts and leisures that many of us enjoy. And that's, by the way, what most of us are anxious about, are we not? The securities, the comforts, the leisures, losing those things. That's what we're thinking about. We're not likely thinking about what are we going to eat tomorrow? Where will we find fresh water? What clothes am I going to wear? Those are, we know those things are covered. But let's remember, those are the necessities. Our Father knows that those are our needs. He will provide them. And then He says this, The end of life is not those things. Did not make life for eating. Did not make your body simply for clothing. He says this, very important command, Seek first the kingdom of God. Here's your first priority. And His righteousness And all these things, secondary matters, will be added to you. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. That is the priority of the Christian life. Are you seeking those things right now? The kingdom of God is His eternal rule as God. His righteousness, the conduct of the citizens who belong to that kingdom. So to seek these things is to actually set your affections on the King. To submit your life to His Word. The law of Christ. To surrender your life for the mission. Proclaim the Gospel of the Kingdom to others. And to strive through this momentary affliction that we all live in for the hope of the eternal weight of glory. When we see Him face to face. And we live in that Kingdom. And we're with Him. Notice how this directive, when we seek the kingdom and His righteousness, it takes our eyes off of ourself, doesn't it? And it takes our eyes off of lesser secondary concerns and puts it on the primary. Our Lord Jesus. It, attra- it directs our attention, just like Mary, to pay attention to Him. To have a singular eye. To... Focus on Him, His work, His Word. And this will help you out of the spiral of despair. Redirect your attention off of circumstances, off of yourself, and onto His eternal rule and the conduct of the citizens who belong to it. Jesus already said in 5.6, He said, Blessed, happy are those, spiritually thriving are those who hunger and thirst for what? Not in and out. Righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Do you believe that promise attached to that beatitude? 
And then there's a promise that comes with this command. So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Trust God to provide the rest. Spurgeon writes this. Leave it to Spurgeon to just make it concise and illustrative. A good word. He says, God who gives you heaven will not... Sorry, let me start again. God who gives you heaven will not deny you bread on the way to get there. Do not be anxious. Trust God. Your Father is sovereign. His kingdom is first. And thirdly, very simply, today's trouble is sufficient. Today's trouble is sufficient. Just a very simple, practical word Jesus gives in verse 34. This is so, again, simple. It's very practical. It helps us deal with anxiety every day. Helps us fight it. He says, verse 34, he says, Therefore, the third command, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, think about the birds. Are they planning for the drought to come? Are they forecasting blocks in the supply chain? No, no, no. They're they're going out and gathering enough food for what? Just for today. What about the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, provide for us just for today. How many of us are thinking about not just today's needs, but tomorrow's needs, next week's needs, next month's, this coming year? Jesus says, don't worry about that. Anxiety over tomorrow really is unrealistic and unhelpful because you don't know what will come tomorrow. You're going to have trouble even forecasting tomorrow's needs because you don't know what the troubles are that will come. James 4 tells us something similar. James 4.13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Now, there are good stewardship principles in Scripture and the Proverbs for us to save, for us to invest, for us to handle our money and our time wisely, that's all yes and amen. But to be worried, to be concerned, to cast your treasure, your investments, all of your heart and your life into tomorrow's either success or trouble, that's a foolish endeavor. There's enough trouble in each day. Enough trouble in each day. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Think about how helpful this is and practical when you sit there and you speculate about what could happen and you've got all kinds of plans for that coming difficult conversation, for that talk from your boss or from a difficult conversation you may have to have with your spouse or maybe the trouble that your kids will get into tomorrow, what kind of safety measures need to be in place to protect them so they're not you know, taken away or eaten by wolves, whatever it is. We start to conjure up these scenarios before they even happen. And what happens, honestly, most often? When we anticipate such trouble and difficulty, what happens most of the time? Not all the time, but most of the time. You get into that conversation, you come up to that trouble, and you're like, huh, not as bad as I made it out to be, right? Or maybe it has been far worse than you thought it would be. 
The point is, is you have no control. You can't forecast that. You can't plan perfectly and precisely what will happen, what trouble will come. So Jesus says, don't be concerned about it. Be faithful today. Enough is the temptation and the trouble for today. Step one step at a time through today's trouble. Even modern psychological methods have applied these principles in their counseling. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He's going to provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I'll tell you what the inescapable temptations are. You know what the inescapable temptations are? The ones that you make up in your head. You're not going to be able to escape those. Trust God. Leave those concerns to Him, the God of tomorrow. Don't be overwhelmed with unrealistic worry, concern, or problems. Just get through today. Pray for enough bread for today. Like the birds, work for the day. Give the Lord your faithful and good efforts and trust Him to provide the rest. Well, no wonder we are anxious. No wonder we're anxious. So many concerns in our lives. The lesser gods are failing us, aren't they? The lesser gods are not in control. They don't fulfill or satisfy. They don't last long. They don't provide real security, comfort, or hope. They leave us toiling, laboring, circling, running, spiraling. Don't trust them. Trust God. A trustworthy and a better Master. Your Heavenly Father is sovereign. Your King, His kingdom is eternal. And your God has tomorrow in His hands. Trust Him. Trust His promises. And more than the physical food that we eat daily, we need the spiritual food of really an expression of faith in Christ, which we'll participate in a moment in communion. We're going to take part of the elements, the symbols, that remind us of who our faith is in, and we feed on that spiritual food that we need regularly. And so, like we do every first Sunday of the month, we're going to participate in communion in just a moment. So the band is going to come up during my prayer. The elements will be, be distributed to you. And you'll be able to take those and hold on to them. Wait until I give you instruction from God's Word. And then we will participate in communion together as a church family. Okay? So let me close in prayer. Father, you've given us every good reason to trust you. You've shown us. Not only your Word, it speaks truth to our hearts. But even beyond that, Lord, you have confirmed it through the experiences of our lives. When we trust you, when we hold fast to you and your character, the concerns of this life fade away. The treasures of this world grow grow strangely dim in light of your glorious and wonderful face. So help keep our eyes singular and focused on you, trusting you, having our hope set in you, looking forward to the kingdom where you make all wrongs right. God, and help us to not be concerned about the troubles of tomorrow, 
but to trust the God of tomorrow in every endeavor. God, I pray that you would warm our hearts to the Son, Jesus Christ, now as we get ready to take communion, that we would confess sin, that we would have our hearts right and set on Him, our great High Priest, the great Savior who atoned for our sins. Help us now as we prepare. In Jesus' name, amen.